0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show, in the news from strange places. As the pandemic lockdown seems to wind down, can we now look back on it with relief or even humor? Live from a safe distance, it's your quarantined neighborhood news.
1: At whatever time it is.
0: Dedicated, dependable, definitely not going outside
1: and welcome to quarantine news network i'm constance walker and i haven't seen the sun in days tonight's top story belts i haven't seen one in weeks do they still exist when is the last time you wore one we'll keep you updated with the latest information as it becomes available now let's send it over to carl for a traffic update carl how's it looking out there
2: Thanks, Constance. It's backed up as usual here in the kitchen this evening with significant congestion here at the sink. Now, you can expect normal delays in the pantry area, especially around the northern shelf, carrying loads of cereal, chips, and snack cakes.
1: How about the appliances, Carl?
0: Smooth sailing for now. But I'm about to open the fridge back up
2: so I can stare inside like something magically appeared since I last looked in there an hour ago. So get ready for that.
1: You better let me know if you find anything good in there.
0: I will, but I'm not sharing.
1: Thanks for nothing, Carl. Now let's head over to Ken to find out what's happening in the world of sports.
2: Thanks, Constance.
1: Sounds like a good one, Ken.
2: Yeah, Constance, this one's shaping up to be an instant classic. Oh, what do we have here? I think we're all tied up at two now. <laughs> I miss sports, a lot. I think the Cardinals are playing.
1: Thanks for whatever that was, Ken. Now let's take a peek at this week's forecast. What can we expect this week, Chip?
2: 76 degrees all week long, morning, afternoon, and night. Not a degree colder unless someone in this household gets another job, which I can tell you right now, it's
3: not gonna be me.
1: Any chance of a cold front this evening, Chip?
2: Over my dead body. Chip Jr., did you leave your bedroom light on again? Was there anybody in there? Okay, well, you need to go in there and turn it off. Ah, not right now. 76 degrees.
1: We'll check back in with Chip in a little bit. But first, an update on our top story. We can now confirm that belts still exist. But what's the point? This just in, there are people walking outside. Let's go live to the window where our neighborhood's nosiest resident, Linda, is watching. What are you seeing out there, Linda? Oh, well, I don't wanna cause a panic, but there's at least three to four people walking around outside and they are not six feet apart. I'm sure they're just getting some exercise. Also, how do you not know if there are three or four people out there? Well, one is very tiny and in some sort of stroller. That's definitely a family getting some fresh air. Well, then why are they covering their faces? Those are masks. Linda? Linda, what are you doing? Are you calling the police? Oh no, worse. I'm posting about it on Facebook. (sighs) Well, that's it for tonight's quarantine news. Join us again tomorrow at whatever time it is right now for much more of the same. I'm Constance Walker, and I don't know what day it is.
0: And that was live, local, and locked inside. The latest from the Quarantine News Network. Thank you, It's a Southern Thing Channel, for that report. And next on Arts Express, switching to a more somber note in our Culture Wars episode this week, the Biden administration in its continuing two-faced approach to governing by contradiction and confusing the masses, Biden refused to criticize Israel for the ongoing massive bombing of civilians in Gaza and repeatedly blocked U.N. Security Council proposals, but did criticize the Israeli bombing and destruction of one particular building in Gaza, the Associated Press headquarters. Oh, seemingly undercover and while approving $735 million in arms sales to Israel at the same time. And if the Israeli motive was to silence the media and their reporting of what Israel is up to in perpetrating war crimes in Gaza, so we get to hear only the Israeli corporate media reports, well, we're already quite used to that in this country. But here's what those stunned journalists had to say as they stared at the rubble of their just incinerated press headquarters a minute ago, followed by Pink Floyd's Roger Waters.
3: That's what's going now, right now! It's being it's being hit grossly right now. It's now being hit largely and sporadically. This means that it's being already destroyed completely by the Israeli warplanes. That's what we are witnessing. And the whole world is witnessing with us one more hit two more missiles and the building is now dead it's dead now it's dead by means of israeli missiles it's already leveled to the ground right now at this second as you see in the camera we're heading now for the place for the al-jula building that was standing a few minutes ago before it was striking by the Israeli warplanes. You see here the crowds of people are, being, uh, are gathering around the building. Many of these people are those who used to live in this building. That's the scene right now in the territory. A great deal of anger and rage is ripping through the region at many ways for the time being.
2: Now our, our picture cut. Now we will will not be able to deliver our picture to the world. It's very difficult to me to see this image. It's very hard. For many years I'm working this place, covering the news, covering the wars, the attacks on Gaza. Now there's no picture from Al Jazeera office anymore. Something, you know, I feel, feel very bad. I want to say that we will. We will we'll continue to deliver our message. We will continue to cover the news in Gaza. And we will continue to tell the the message of the Palestinian people and to deliver it to all over the world. OK, they, they, they won't be able to stop our voice by attacking our building. This won't be easy. No, we will continue. This won't be easy If they if they attack our building and destroy it. We will continue from anywhere from Gaza. All the offices of journalists of Gaza it will, it will be our office.
4: Unless some pressure is brought to bear upon the Israeli government to stop their ferocious, uh, murderous attack upon on Gaza, um, they're not going to stop of, uh, of their own accord. Their will is not going to suddenly disappear. But clearly, in the long term, um, the Israeli occupation of Palestine is untenable. It is not a future that can possibly survive. Public opinion is changing all over the world, and they are not going to be allowed to get away with it by the by global civil society, in my view. This is not an equal conflict. This is not... When we're talking about Gaza, we're talking a barrel full of fish, and the Israelis are shooting into it with hugely... Um, efficient weaponry and, um, and, and you talking to me about what some Israeli spokesman is saying about what's going on in Gaza and how that de- the next thing you'll be telling me is that rockets rained down on Jerusalem or some equally nonsensical um, story which they've been sa- they've been saying the same thing over and over again a single state from the river to the sea a proper democracy with equal rights all rights equal, equal human rights for every single citizen. All people, citizens, all the Jews, all the Arabs, all citizens of a single state from the river to the sea. That would work. That would have a chance, a real, real chance of working. You know why? Because it speaks to the collective management of our human affairs that we're all going to have to adopt if we're going to save this fragile planet from this from what we're seeing on our screens
0: here and thank you rt for those reports and now on arts express
5: in the late 40s and early 50s many hollywood leftists were called before the house committee on un-american activities faced with the dilemma of naming fellow workers as communists or losing their careers A few chose to save themselves, but most resisted and paid the price of their silence. They were blacklisted. What is America to me? We will forthwith discharge or suspend without compensation those in our employ, and we will not re-employ any of the ten until such time as he is acquitted or has purged himself of contempt and declares under oath that he is not a communist.
2: There was no a plot to put social content the pictures. The plot was intellectual. The, the thing that's hard to do is how you measure fear.
5: Nothing subversive or un-American has appeared on the screen.
0: And those were scenes from Red Hollywood, the 1996 documentary Revisiting McCarthyism and the U.S. War on the Left, and the Persecution of the Hollywood Ten. And our guest this week, in a kind of black and red struggle, is Billy Woodbury, a leader of the L.A. Rebellion movement of black filmmakers confronting cultural apartheid in Hollywood beginning in the late 60s and making movies their way and Woodbury, best known for his film Bless Their Little Hearts, also came on board as the narrator of Red Hollywood. He'll be telling us why the impact and legacy of the L.A. Rebellion Movement and the Classic Film Festival currently airing and featuring works of others in the movement as well, which included Haile Gerimer and Killer of Sheeps Charles Burnett. First, a little about the L.A. Rebellion Movement from another participating filmmaker, Julie Dash, and referencing her 1983 film, Illusions, from the documentary, The Second Sex and the Seventh Art, Women Directors, then Billy Woodbury phoning in from Lisbon, Portugal.
6: I came in on the tail end of the L.A. Rebellion, but yay, I'm still (laughs) considered one of them. As a part of that group, I was able to not only work on my own films, but uh, work as crew on films of others, uh, inside the so-called L.A. Rebellion, as well as outside. We knew lighting, we knew sound, we knew how to do all of it. One day I'd be gaffer, next day I'd be making sandwiches, uh, next day I was a sound recorder. (laughs) I laugh because you asked go- what was the goal of the L.A. Rebellion. It wasn't a, we didn't have that name then. We had shared beliefs, and those shared beliefs were, we're gonna make the films that we wanna make, give voice to the ideas, uh, the joys of life, the tragedies that we've seen, the historical uh, events that have gone unseen, unheard. We're gonna give voice to these stories regardless of whatever anyone else thinks, especially, you know, the, the Hollywood. So uh, they said, oh, yeah, you're working in the belly of the beast. And it was like, yeah, we like that. You know, like when we were calling ourselves, you know, like outlaws. Then later, uh, the, the Monica uh, L.A. Rebellion was um, placed on us. We were just a group of students who lived and died <laughs> in making films. The outlaws would've gone wild and reigned supreme with, with the digital technology that's available today. I mean, let's be the first studio to turn this tide completely around, give the public
7: situations and characters that they can recognize as a part of their own lives.
5: CJ, why can't I do a project? Let me show you what I can do. Nonsense,
7: nonsense, nonsense. We've been through all this before. You're one of the few women in all of Hollywood No in all of the country, my dear, who has the power to make executive decisions.
6: Digital technology has absolutely um, not only changed the industry, but leveled the playing field. Anyone can make that movie now that, they, that he or she always wanted to make. Hello and welcome.
7: Okay. Uh, thank you.
0: And where are you calling from?
7: I'm in Lisbon, Portugal.
0: Okay. Why is it important to you that Bless Their Little Hearts is a feature of the LA Rebellion Special Collection of the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival? And why is it important to you that the film is being re-released at this particular historical moment in time?
7: Uh, why is it important to me? Uh, I I, I mean I, I think maybe I don't know that it's important, but I think uh, it's uh, significant or meaningful that people after so long are still uh, they still find something of interest in the possibility of interest in the film that was made so long so long ago and uh, that is possibly an audience that would want to uh, see the film and know the film. I mean, I I don't think uh, I didn't think so far ahead, and I didn't predict, and I didn't suppose, and I didn't know that this would be the case. So the fact that it happened is, I think, um, maybe uh, meaningful, and I'm I'm grateful that there's some interest.
0: And how would you compare and contrast the significance of "Bless Their Little Hearts"? And the larger l a rebellion film movement back then, and for a new young generation today
7: maybe uh, it's uh it's a belated reference, maybe it's a reference that now they have that they can uh they can they can they can take a look at they can consider they can see if there's some worth well uh inspiration and things to take away from that for their own. Time in their own work,
0: and how do you feel the LA Rebellion movement changed and transformed you and your work as a filmmaker?
7: Oh, I think it was um, that that time and that and those people and working together uh, to just try to create something. We 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 weren't uh, we didn't have a manifesto. We didn't issue uh, uh, announcement. That we were rebelling, that we were, we were, you know, doing something uh, so new and that kind of thing. We just tried to do the work, and even if we felt those things and we said it among ourselves, uh, the thing was to try to make something uh, meaningful and lasting, or or that had some that had some of the values that we uh, that we thought were important and to be uh, determined to do that, to show a different uh, uh, kind of, a different view, a different uh, uh, understanding of the life that we were trying to uh, bring to movies. Mm. And that was the thing. And so it, I, I didn't give out on that. Uh, I didn't make so many films after. I went to teach. I make some films. And I think I still have some of the values that uh, came out of that. I think there's a kind of stubborn uh, persistence and uh, demand that one places on oneself when trying to make work that is truthful, that is meaningful and honest as far as you understand it, and to share that with the world and to... Uh, Make things that others might not uh, make, that they might not deem important. or To make them in the way that you understand is the best way to arrive at some truth about what you're talking about. So that's mostly what I carry from it.
0: What are your thoughts about the current new generation of black filmmakers, both in and outside of Hollywood, and their determination to make movies their way, and challenge cultural apartheid and its legacy in Hollywood.
7: Oh, I suppose it's uh, it's a good thing, and the way you describe it in a way, maybe, um, maybe that's that's uh, something different. Uh, I think, and I wish them all the best. And I have to say that they're, apparently it is. There are more of them able to to uh, create work and to have some uh, impact and to have some audience, and they demonstrate a lot of uh, capacity in that way. Uh, we have to. I have to say that at the time that we came along, uh, it was not the, the industry was not so open or welcoming or even curious about what we were up to. I think that's different now. And I think probably even when we when some of us had the, the invitation or whatever, it was not the inclination to uh, there was a fear to subordinate your your vision, your view, your your approach and your subject to the realms of the commercial interest or the people who thought they knew better or whatever. So I think this generation—they uh, don't necessarily have that. They've had uh, some people before them, generations of them, Spike Lee and other people, who have demonstrated that you can work in the main industry, and it's possible, and that you can—you know—you can fight for your concepts, your projects, your—you know—your ideas, and. Um, they are able to do that. Also, they find support partners and opportunities in the industry the way that it's uh, configured now that allows them to do that, people who can put their work in play. I don't know so much about the industry, but that A24 seems to be one that helps them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It helps Moonlight, it helped uh, 12 Years and all those things. So it's a different world, a different industry.
0: Now, you were also part of Red, as well as Black filmmaking, so to speak, as the narrator of Red Hollywood, a documentary about the Hollywood blacklist and a radically different perspective on the period in the history of U.S. cinema. What led you into that project?
7: Oh, it was because it was a project of a colleague and another filmmaker and scholar that I knew and they asked me to do it. But in fact, let me confess at this late date that your characterization is maybe quite accurate because in fact I felt uh, and I have and I learned and I felt some uh, affection for, respect for, and admiration for the people who were a part of the earlier Hollywood and were victimized in the during the McCarthy era, and were denied work and opportunity, and those kinds of things. as part of the uh, as part of the heritage of people like myself. And I fortunately I, got, I came across, got to meet, got to know a bit more about that when they when they started to return to visibility in the seventies, and there was work about it and that thing. So when Tom asked me to do it, I said sure. It was, it was not a problem. I don't know that I did such a great job. I don't mm-hmm. think I'm such a great narrator, mm-hmm. but I was honored to do it mm-hmm. and to discover that the approach that they had it was not to talk about them as victims of this purge or the, as a political, but to ask what did they actually make? What were their films? What was their approach? And what did they actually do in the time that they worked in the industry?
0: And did you get to meet some of the prominent figures who were part of the film? Abraham Polanski, Ring Lardner, and Paul Jericho. I and
7: met him. Met him coming down. I met him coming down the steps. He was doing a, <laughs> a, a special class at uh, UCLA once. I met. Uh, I saw a lot of them. And when I was younger, and when he died, Dalton Trumbo, a man at KPFK, in uh, Los Angeles, gave me the task of recording Dalton Trombo's memorial. Mm. So there I got to see Michael Wilson and a lot of those people. Mm. And a man who was really important for me, his name was Carlton Moss. He he, he was part of Capra's team, and he made the uh, Negro Soldier. And he w- he was like a mentor and a great friend to me. And those were his friends and associates and people he was in touch with. And so I got to know, I met some of them through that. I met Paul Jericho, and I met them at different programs, festivals, and that kind of
0: thing. How did you react to them, and how they impressed you?
7: Oh, they impressed me by, by, their, by their work. Uh, John Barry, I think I saw him once in France, the man who made Claudine, who came back and made Claudine. Uh, Jules Dassin, I saw in the Berlin Film Festival in 1984, and uh, so. And Joseph Losey, I never saw, except I saw his films. Uh, I also met uh, Norma Bartzman, Uh the black, the red in the blacklist. Do you know her book memoir? Yeah, I met her. I I spent the. 70-something birthday of Noel Birch, one of the artists of that Red Hollywood, at her apartment in Beverly Hills because she had moved back to Los Angeles then.
0: What do you feel you'd be up to in filmmaking today if the LA Rebellion movement came on the scene in the present time and for a younger generation today?
7: Uh, That that movement and that, that that uh happened in the time that it happened and and under the conditions that it happened and if they have some uh if they are inclined to uh make an association or make uh, uh some kind of uh collective you know uh undertaking position for however long they decide to do that i think uh great for them mm. but i i think um, the other thing you, we have to remember is, okay, that 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 name was coined by a, a scholar and a critic and a writer about film. His name was Clyde Taylor, and he was a professor at Tufts and later, I think, at NYU. And he was one of the early ones who wrote in uh, Black Collegiate Magazine and Black Scholar and that about some of the films that were made at UCLA. By some of our colleagues, Larry Clark, Heidi Garima, and those people, and in in the 1980s, he gave a he he made a presentation at the Whitney Museum, and he entitled it "The L.A. Rebellion," and it was a name that sort of stuck, and that circulated in academia, and slowly, 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 after some years, it was consolidated into an exhibition into uh, uh, archival restorations and recovery and, you know, uh, interviews, documents, and a big catalog uh, that talked about that time and that period.
0: And what do you see as the enduring impact of the L.A. Rebellion and its influence on filmmaking through the decades and in the present time, and in contrast in opposition to mainstream and Hollywood filmmaking?
7: I don't know, maybe I think some of those people, uh, Charles Lynette and others, Julie Dash and the others, are greatly admired and recognized in some circles. And I think some people who uh, have had, uh, who, who have made some uh, impact and, and, and made some, uh, you know, they've achieved some things. Uh, those people were, in, some of these people in these films were an inspiration for them, um, and maybe uh, people I don't even know, but I know that in, there, now maybe there's a couple of generations of filmmakers, maybe less now than before, but previous couple of generations of filmmakers found some inspiration from the, from the films. And from what they knew of them and what they saw, and then they made their own uh, work. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't have specific names, but I've encountered them. Yeah.
0: And any last word on why listeners should tune into the LA Rebellion special collection of the Classic Film Festival?
7: I think if if they are not familiar with these films and if they uh, are interested. In the historical and social and political, um, cultural, you know, uh, uh, if if they if they're interested by that, then I think it may it may be uh, well spent some hours to see the films and to form their own opinion, but to just be familiar uh, and know that they exist, and maybe uh, share that with other people who might not tune in but who might catch them another way at some point mm. to at least uh, be aware that it happened and that it still seemingly has some lasting meaning and uh, interest for people. Yeah. So that's why I would, think, I, I would hope they would uh, be curious and check it out. Yeah.
0: Okay, thank you, Billy Woodbury, for calling into our show. Thank you.
7: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: And more information about the HBO Classic Film Festival is online at filmfestival.tcm.com. And speaking of Red Hollywood, one prominent figure who was a target of McCarthyism in Hollywood and driving him into exile was Orson Welles, charged by the FBI as a political subversive and communist and a threat to national security which was precipitated in particular with the release of his 1941 classic Citizen Kane. And written into his FBI files, quote, The evidence before us leads inevitably to the conclusion that the film is nothing more than an extension of the Communist Party's campaign to smear one of its most effective opponents in the U.S., namely right-wing newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. But on a very different note, this week's show honors the late Orson Welles on the occasion of what would have been his 106th birthday on May 6th with his narration of the very political allegory, the 1971 animated short feature, Freedom River.
5: There once was discovered a land where freedom flowed like a clear, refreshing stream. Word of this wondrous stream spread to places where the currents of freedom were weak and dying. Many who heard of the river longed to come and live in this new land to refresh themselves in this stream, for they knew that the power of freedom was great, that it would renew their hope and replenish their energy. So they came and tasted the waters of freedom, but were refreshed. And they said, Here is the greatness of this land. So long as this stream flows strong and clear, our people will be filled with life and hope. Our land will bring forth a vigorous and abundant life. But if these waters cease to flow or lose their clarity our land will decay and die the new land prospered the people tilled the soil and built great cities remarkable inventions and new ideas made life rich and joyous in this land of freedom the people became content how good to live in this most favored land they grew proud how well our hands have cultivated and built. Their pride grew and grew. They did not know that too much pride could blind them. They did not know that too much pride could make them arrogant, foolish. And so it happened that because they so coveted the river, they barred from it people who looked unfamiliar, or talked differently in the false belief that strangers were not deserving, little remembering that not long ago they too were strangers. When new ideas were proposed, the people ridiculed them, for they were now afraid to change the old ways. and some among them arose and selfishly took more than their share, the people did not stop them, but instead resolved to do the same. Instead of helping those who were ill and weak, they despised them and chastised them for their idleness. When a wise man stood up and said, "Look." The waters are beclouding. They could not see it, for their pride made them blind. And when he tried again to make them see, they shut him up, for his vision infuriated them. How could they act differently? They loved the stream as they remembered it, fresh and clear, and could not bear to look upon its decay. When the children, unblinded by old recollection, saw it too, they cried out. But their fathers called them ungrateful and punished them. And even as the river grew weak and muddy, glib leaders said it was strong and clear and must be sent to certain deserving lands. And the people believed them and allowed their precious little fluid to be spilled upon alien soil. The people, feeling their hopes dying, and their energy waning, finally looked at the river. They saw it was wasted and stagnant. The spirit of despair was great in the land. The people became confused. They did not know what to do. In the darkness of that hour, they heard many voices. Some said, The river is a nuisance and only lowers efficiency. Too much freedom causes disorder. The people are not ready for the river of freedom. Perhaps later. We will stop the river and start it again what it is But other voices said, let us work to make the waters of freedom flow fresh and strong again. Where it has been fouled by our foolishness, it can be made clear by our wisdom. Where it has grown stagnant from our neglect, it can be kept fresh by our vigilance. And the people listening said, the life or death of the River of Freedom is in our hands.
0: And Freedom River is written by Warren Schmidt. And coming up next on Arts Express.
3: <laughs> Round about the cauldron go. In the poisoned entrails throw. <laughs> Toad that under cold stone, days and nights has thirty-one, sweltered venom, sleeping gut, boil thou first in the charmed pot. (laughs) Double, Double, double.
8: Hi, this is Jack Shalot. The newspapers blared the headlines. Thousands of America Firsters and anti-immigrant bigots gathered in front of the building that should have been a symbol of free speech. The racists, fueled by economic distress, tried to storm the building. Of course, the protesters wore their stupid hats so they could recognize each other. And then the riot began. As the rioters breached the doors and windows of the building and got inside, They joined their companions who had gotten inside under false pretenses. They screamed and tore up the place. By the time it was over, 20 were killed and scores more wounded. Yes, that's how it was in May 1849 at New York City's Astor Place Opera House. This theater riot at the Astor Place Opera House was an ugly confluence of nativism, that is, America firstism, income inequality, and wouldn't you know it, Shakespeare mania. Shakespeare? How does Shakespeare start a riot? Well, here's the thing. The riot at Astor Square, like our own recent January 6th unpleasantness, was a right-wing protest by segments of working class and petty bourgeois, and it was true that their economic situations were highly precarious. The standard of living for urban workers was dropping precipitously as wages were undercut by cheap labor from overseas. They were being replaced. So they protested. But the problem with the right-wing protest is that they don't talk about class in the way that a left-winger would. They don't dare to say that their ills are really a result of a capitalist class system that pits working people against each other. To put it in a nutshell, the put-upon refuse to recognize that they are proletarians, joined by a common economic class mission to overthrow the capitalists. But if denied that kind of identification, what can those segments of the working class do with their discontent? They displace their anger and their own self-identification onto other kinds of solidarity. So instead of economic class solidarity, there's racial and cultural solidarity. The rioters of 1849 understood themselves to be true white Americans whose jobs were threatened by un-American newcomers, such as the Irish, and they were threatened by the coming abolition of slavery. Worse still, they knew they were put upon by the upper-class English, who were despicable, not because they were rich, but because they were English. And with that, came the creation of other markers of cultural solidarity. Well, in 2021, it might be what cable news channel you listened to, but in 1849, an important cultural definer of where you stood was which Shakespearean actor you rooted for. Because in 1849, actors were crisscrossing the country, bringing theater and Shakespeare to everyone. Shakespeare was seen and appreciated by a wide range of ages and classes. Just as Michael Jackson or Bruce Springsteen belonged to everyone, so it was with Shakespeare. And one Shakespearean actor, above all the others in the mid-1800s in America, captured and personified the white American native sentiment. Edwin Forrest. Edwin Forrest was American born, not English. And his acting style was barrel-chested and action-oriented a manly specimen of brawn no matter what role he was playing. He was a great favorite at New York's Bowery Theater where the local nativist Bowery Boys, as they were known, would vocally egg on or boo the actors from the balcony seats. The Bowery Boys were butchers' apprentices, volunteer firemen and gang members. Unlike in England, free expression was not so unusual in American theaters. The theater was always thought of as a place where the classes mixed freely and free speech was a given. Think of the old neighborhood movies on a Sunday afternoon matinee and you'll have a good idea of the atmosphere. But how did this turn into a riot with 20,000 people jamming the streets? Well, James Shapiro, In his book Shakespeare in a Divided America has an excellent account of the ludicrous and tragic details what started it all was an evening in London when the great English tragedian William Charles McCready a London favorite was stopped in his tracks while performing Hamlet when he heard loud hissing from the balcony but worse than the hissing was who was behind it it was his rival actor Edwin Forrest the Bowery boy favorite who was visiting England and had gotten poor notices himself. Well, Edwin Forrest loved to upset the likes of the more refined actors like MacReady. What had really set Forrest off about MacReady's performance of Hamlet was that at one point where Hamlet is supposed to feign madness, MacReady skipped and pranced daintily across the stage, waving a handkerchief, turning his head back and forth. Well, this was too much for the macho Forrest who defiantly stood his ground. The performance came to a stop until the crowd turned against Forrest with cries of, throw him out! Forrest slipped out and MacReady finished the plays. The papers were full of it the next day with MacReady calling Forrest a low-minded ruffian and no Englishman would have done a thing so base. But Forrest was not to forget this. A few years later, when MacReady came to tour America, Forrest trolled MacReady, following him to Philadelphia duplicating his theater schedule. When MacReady opened with Macbeth, Forrest in a nearby theater played Macbeth as well. When MacReady played Othello, Forrest played Othello. When MacReady played Lear, guess who was playing Lear? And when MacReady was playing Hamlet, Forrest was playing Hamlet his way. As James Shapiro writes, at this point, MacReady was positioned by Forrest as the embodiment of British elitism. Well, it all comes to a head in May of 1849. McCready is about to perform Macbeth at the newly built Astor Place Opera House, at what was then the heart of New York City. Ironically, its location was very near to the present-day headquarters of the New York Shakespeare Festival. But at that time, the Astor Place Opera House was something different for a New York theater rather than an egalitarian mode of entertainment as theater had been in America. The opera house was deliberately built without a pit where traditionally the lower classes sat on benches. But even worse, the theater had instituted a dress code of white kid gloves among other items of apparel. It was clear what they were trying to do, keep the rabble, that is the likes of the Bowery boys, out of their elite theater. So when McCready was engaged to play at the Astor Place Opera House for his farewell performance in America, it's not surprising that the Bowery Boys took it as a personal affront to their Americanism. In characteristic fashion, Edward Forrest booked the nearby Broadway theater to play, well, no surprise, Macbeth also, but that wasn't good enough for Forrest supporters. For not only must Forrest be exalted, but McCready had to be put down. But it wasn't going to be easy given that the opera house made it difficult for the lower classes to slip in unobserved. So forest supporters went round to various hotels, buying up tickets which they distributed to the nativist masses who knew what had to be done. As the play was about to start, the forest supporters started stomping, which MacReady backstage mistook for applause. As McCready realized what was happening, he went out to address the crowd, but they were having none of it. A banner was unfurled reading, No apologies, it is too late. And then flying out from the audience came a barrage of eggs, pennies, potatoes, apples, and asafoetida of foul smelling spice that splashed McCready's costume. Then, more seriously, two chairs, and then another two came flying down to the stage. With that, it was too much for MacReady, and he walked off, booking a boat back to England. But it was not to be. The newspapers and the elite demanded that MacReady stand up to the ruffians. They urged him to perform again on May 10th. He agreed, but the Bowery boys were not going to take it lying down. They had hundreds of posters pasted throughout the town that said, working men, shall Americans or English rule in this city? And the mayor in anticipation stationed 200 policemen inside the theater and another 125 around it with the seventh regiment militia in reserve downtown. The performance began and the heckling started immediately. The police inside were able to contain the rioters. However, outside, the crowd was banging on the building and the police, who had only nightsticks, were overwhelmed. Cobblestones that were torn up from the street were tossed. There was only one answer, bring in the cavalry. But the cavalry was overwhelmed, bloody, as they were thrown off their horses by the rioters. The order was at last given by the mayor to bring in the infantry. After warnings, the infantry fired directly into the crowd. When the smoke cleared and the screams stopped, 20 had been killed and dozens wounded. There were pools of blood on the sidewalks. The next day, the opera house was closed, but nonetheless, a huge crowd gathered downtown, estimated at 25,000 or more but they were soon met by the armed militia and the police cleared the streets with fixed bayonet attacks. One Philadelphia newspaper wrote that the riot had left behind, quote, a feeling to which this community has hitherto been a stranger, an opposition of classes, the rich and the poor, a feeling that there is now in our country, in New York City, what every patriot hitherto has considered it his duty to deny a high and a low class, If only the rioters had understood it in the same terms as that prescient Philadelphia newspaper had understood it. The enemies causing their misery were not immigrants or the English, and certainly not poor William Charles McCready. If only they could understand as the recent January 6th rioters could not, that their misery was caused by capitalists who are willing to let them race to the bottom.
2: Out! Out, brief candle! Life's but a walking shadow.
4: A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury,
2: signifying nothing.
8: This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.